We are the Atheist Nomads, bringing you history, science, politics, religion, and interviews with leaders in the atheist community. Not all those who wander are lost. Welcome to Atheist Nomads, Episode 6, Recovering from Religion with Jerry DeWitt. Jerry was kind enough to join us for the second half of the episode, which in all practicality is a lot more than the last half, but we had a wonderful chat with him. So this is going to be by far our longest episode to date. This is a little heads up. Of course, you probably already saw that when you downloaded the file. Yeah, so sit down, buckle up, and have a good listen. If you are driving, yes, please buckle up. <laughs> so, Wesley, how have you been? <laughs> I'm doing great. I actually spent... A, a good chunk of my Friday and Saturday morning uh, helping the Ask, Ask an Atheist radio show. Mm. They're doing a 24-hour video podcast nice. uh, in support of the same-sex marriage bill in Washington State that's coming up here in November. Mm. So, yeah, I, I pimped us a couple times, but you know what? They, So far as I know, they, they reached their goals for fundraising. And, Very nice. So, awesome. Good on them. Yeah. That's awesome. It's a, it's a really good cause, too. Yeah, so a little shout-out to Sam, Mike, and Rebecca over there. Hey, guys. Yeah, cool. Yeah, the newest thing for me is, well, I got a tattoo. My yeah. first one. I uh, did it on Friday, commemorating five years of, of being free. And this is, you know, I've been replaying in my mind some of the stuff that was going on that, that fateful weekend in, in 2007 and uh, decided to commemorate it with... Well, a, a tattoo, and I got the American Atheist symbol. Uh, I'll have a, a picture uh, up on the blog that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. But yeah, the artist that did it did a really good job. I'm really happy with it. It didn't really hurt that bad. It wasn't really pleasant, you know, hour and a half of being stabbed a few thousand times. But yeah, oh, yeah. Not, ba- not bad. But yeah, just kind of going into what was going on that weekend five years ago. Uh, I left Jordan and flew, to Chi- you know, flew back to Chicago from Amman, Jordan, at the end of my archaeological dig. And then... Spent the night in Chicago, and then I, I flew to Cancun to preach the evangelistic series. I was there for a few days before the series actually started, and it was Friday the 13th, 2007. And it's kind of nice that it actually works out to the same days of the week this year. Uh, but yeah, it was Friday the 13th, preached the first sermon in the series. And I knew going into it that I didn't believe anymore. I had done my best up to that point since one time that I'd, I'd preached a sermon that I didn't believe I'd done my best to avoid doing that again. But these were canned sermons that I had to do. And I was really hoping that going through the traditional Adventist message would restore my faith. And what better way to go through it than to preach it? Well, I preached the first sermon and was it was it was unconvincing. Then Saturday morning, I preached the second sermon. Saturday night, I preached the third one. And then we're recording this uh, Sunday, July 15. Well, July 15, 2007 was by far the darkest day of my life. I was, everything was perfectly clear. I had preached the three messages that were the basis of everything. Those were the ones that opened up or established any validity to the message. Um, They were the ones trying to establish the authority of, of scripture and they were completely unconvincing. And I knew that at that point, if those didn't convince me, then nothing would. None of the rest would do anything for me. And it was... It was horrible. Uh, and I was there with a bunch of other people from the seminary, and we went to the, the beach at Islu Mejeres Sunday afternoon, and I was playing on a tropical beach, literally in paradise, and I was so miserable. 
I wanted to to get to the end of it. I wanted to figure out what was going to happen. I needed to decide what to do. I I felt like I was obligated to finish out the series, but it wouldn't do anybody any good for me to preach something that I have no conviction for. And it was it was destroying me. But to enjoy the day on the beach, I tried to put it on my mind and ignore it. Well, we got back to the the hotel and my ride came and got me and took me to the church I was preaching at in a a village outside of Cancun. And I had to preach the the salvation sermon and absolutely nothing. Uh, I I felt nothing. It was unconvincing. It was actually I, I felt a lot. I felt like a hypocritical sack of shit. I, I was preaching a message that I didn't believe. I was I was spewing forth lies, and that is a horrible thing to have to do. That night, after I got done preaching, I went out to dinner with my driver and translator and my translator's husband and a few other people from the church, and I had a great time with them. And I was doing my best to, to put off thinking about what I had to think about. And then that night, got back to the hotel and had some time to think. And I wrestled all night with what to do. I, I might have slept an hour or two. I was tossing and turning and thinking and, and it was it uh, that's was always a that's always a, a great way to make decisions on an hour of sleep. Be clear minded and I think. worked I worked through every possible angle though. Yeah? Yeah. And by five o'clock in the morning I knew what I had to do. I knew I had to quit. So Monday, July sixteenth, my roommate woke up. And we chatted for about an hour and a half before we went in for the meeting and went over everything and agreed that I had thought it all through and it was what I needed to do. He was disappointed in in the conclusion I'd come to, but agreed that I was doing the right thing by quitting. So we went to the morning meeting and once we got done, I pulled the our, our sponsor from the seminary and the person from the, the sponsoring organization. I pulled them aside and sat them down and I told them that I couldn't continue preaching, that I wasn't a Christian anymore. And we had, you know, in about an hour and a half, is they were trying to make sure that there wasn't something I'd missed. And in the end, they agreed as well that I was I was doing the right thing and I was doing what I had to do. They thanked me for my integrity. And when I left that room, it was the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> I say good on them for, you know, not trying to push you back in. Yeah. Man, I just keep on thinking about uh, Mother Teresa, basically, when she used to write back to her, her back to the Vatican saying that, you know, she didn't she had all these issues with faith and all her bishops bishops just kept on saying, oh, don't worry about it. That just brings you closer to Calvary. You know, you'll you'll be all right. You'll work through it and just completely dismissing her and her arguments. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very glad that that didn't happen to me um, when I walked out of that room. I felt free. Man. I felt liberated. I was I was at peace. I had finally found peace. I had been suffering from intense cognitive dissonance for years where my entire worldview changed, where I was living a life professing to things that did not fit with what I knew to be true. And it was so wonderful to no longer have to live a lie, to no longer have to to pretend to be something I wasn't. And I left, got a haircut, I shaved off my beard. I'd grown out a beard while I was in Jordan. And I, I decided I was going to keep it until I'd come to resolution. And when I had a resolution, I would shave it off as a a symbol of the cognitive dissonance and the, and the, the misery I'd, I'd had. And yeah. that night I had my first beer. 
<laughs> a few days later, I smoked my first cigar. I I went at it wanting to experience life, see what it was I'd missed out on. And man, if there's ever a place to apostatize, Cancun is a good one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So question, which you can cut out. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you learn, lose your virginity? Was that before then? No, it was uh, March 2008. Snap. It, okay. it still took a while after that. Um, I had... You know, I was I only knew the Adventist college dating scene and I was horrible at that. So (laughs) going to bars, which were very foreign place to me and trying to meet these worldly women was it it was very difficult for me. And yeah, I yeah, I didn't have to have sex for the first time until the following March. Yeah. Now, granted, when I finally did lose my virginity, I couldn't get rid of it fast enough. But (laughs) (laughs) well, in general, it's not supposed to be good the first time. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, all right. Yeah, that's just my personal curiosity. Oh yeah, and I'm not editing that out. Oh, all right. Yeah, I have I have no problem talking about that. Heck, talked about sexual problems I had on uh, living after faith. Okay. Yeah. So check that out. And speaking of living after faith, I hear they're back. Uh, they have I haven't seen a new episode up yet, but they are they are back. They are producing new stuff, and we should see something soon from them. Yeah, you're talking about uh, Deanna and Rich, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I actually bumped into them at the Ask an Atheist <laughs> uh, videoathon. Nice. And yeah, they they both said that they were working on new stuff. They'll have it out pretty soon. Yeah. And they also said to tell tell you hi. Ah, thanks. <laughs> They're awesome people. I had a lot of, of fun hanging out with them at the American Atheist Convention. All right, let's uh, get on with the news. Or actually, with uh, This Day in History. All right. This Day in History, 1779. So picture this. You got Commodore Dudley Stalton, uh, General Peleg uh, Wadsworth, and Brigadier General Solomon Lovell, and Lieutenant Colonel Paul Revere, all heading up t- uh, from Massachusetts to what would later become Maine to take out a, a British fort up there. And, well, this is, of course, actually done without any permission from, from the U.S., they're kind of just going up there on their own. Well, now, at that time, they would have been under the Articles of the Confederation. True, true. It was a very loose alliance, and each state had the right to pretty much do whatever it wanted. And they they did it. <laughs> <laughs> and they got their asses kicked. Uh, it took about 10 days to get up there, and just a few days to essentially lose uh, about 470 of, of, the, of our patriots. Uh, the British actually only lost about 13 men to this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, funny, funnily enough, uh, they actually ended up burning their own ships, going upstream and trying to escape. Pretty much everybody got uh, sanctioned for uh, for their actions in this. Paul Revere actually got an acquittal, but uh, Peleg Wadsworth actually got a, a accommodation for his his heroism in setting up a retreat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's crazy to get, get praise for retreat. <laughs> yeah. But, but the retreat was the only thing they actually did well. Yeah. At, yeah. I mean, they sent up about 4,000 men. Uh, it was something like, uh, yeah, 19 warships, 24 transport ships and a thousand militiamen, you know, standard, standard issue army guys. 
and they lost a good chunk. I mean, an eighth of your troops, mm-hmm. that's nothing to spit at. Yeah, and so, not only that, yeah, they lost all the ships. Oh, yeah, they, they scuttled slash burned them all. Yeah, that, that would have been a huge <laughs> loss for the U.S. Navy. Yeah, they're, they're, it's being called the worst naval disaster in American history up until Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. Although, if you look at it in terms of percentage of of the total fleet lost this would probably have pearl harbor beat yeah oh yeah i'm sure there's a uh, way more troops that were over in pearl harbor mm-hmm. all right so this day in history 1799 uh the rosetta stone is discovered so this is an awesome little oh i shouldn't say little this is an <laughs> awesome stone that actually helped translate languages that have have been dead to basically everybody for thousands of years and, and let our our understanding of, of essentially prehistory be brought back to light. Yeah. It's an awesome thing you know, to find. They deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphs because, you know, you had three different scripts on this text with uh, Greek, Egyptian hieroglyphs, and Egyptian demotic. And yeah. everybody already knew Greek. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people did. <laughs> And this is this is quite awesome. Yeah, it, it's the the key to to knowledge that you know had been completely lost for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Rosetta Stone, and you know that name's used now in in marketing. There's the Rosetta Stone uh, language program you can do, but it's really like the ultimate cornerstone, so to say, of modern deciphering of ancient languages. And it's really the way, you know, what, ideally what you need to do to be able to decipher an ancient language is either find something where you have parallel texts or something where it's a, a very closely related language to one you're already familiar with. And, yeah, you can work your way through them. Yeah. little interesting history on that uh, is actually one of Napoleon Bonaparte's soldiers that found the Rosetta Stone about 35 miles north of Alexandria in the town of Rosetta. So, hence the name. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah, beautiful, man. All right. This day in history, 1884, President Arthur proclaims power to impose quarantine on immigrants. Granted, this isn't the first time that this has happened. It actually, I think George Washington was the first president to put a quarantine in, in place. But essentially, you know, we had a lot of immigrants coming in and uh, tuberculosis was a, a very big fear back then. Uh you know, we would just put people into quarantines and make sure that they weren't going to infect the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Even, uh, even so so uh, close as, uh, uh, what was it, the 90s, it must have been, George W. Bush, uh, when SARS came uh, uh, on the stage, very prominent over in Japan and Canada, uh, it, Bush actually put a quarantine in, in place also for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that is is definitely useful to have. There are known uh, incubation periods for certain diseases, and at the very least, you have general standards you can go with on how quickly a disease uh, should develop. And by keeping people in quarantine, you can at least see if they have it without even having the tests to really identify it. It's a it's a good practice. Yeah, I mean, shoot, use uh, the Spanish flu back in 1918. You had uh, over 657,000 Americans were killed by this, mm-hmm. uh, and million, I'm sure millions more around the world. Yeah. <laughs> That's no joke. You know what? Fine. We'll set people up in little camps for a little while or hospitals. That's something that can 
sweep the world. Shoot, you know what? Keep our people safe. And that's one of the easiest and you know least mm-hmm. obtrusive ways to do it. Now, it's it's gets more and more difficult as, as time progresses, considering the fact that now people are traveling from all over the world. You have mm-hmm. airports where people are coming in contact with people from all over the world. And you could have a disease that, say, pops up in, in South Africa. And we know to quarantine people that are in South Africa. Well, somebody flies from South Africa to the U.S. via, say, London and comes in contact with somebody that's traveling from London. They come in contact at the airport. The guy from South Africa gets quarantined. The guy from England doesn't. And the guy from England brings it in. Right. So they can be helpful, but they're not the most effective anymore. If you want some fun, you can always watch that movie Contagion with, uh, well, Matt Damon. And it's a fun way to watch how diseases spread. <laughs> cool. Surprisingly decent movie. All right. Ready for news? Yes, please. All right. I'm sure by now you've all heard about the boson that has been discovered at the Large Hadron Collider. And uh, if you haven't, you need to get out from underneath a rock. <laughs> sorry. Wait, I'm going to have to disagree with you. The alleged higgs boson i said boson i didn't say higgs all right all right right. they are saying that they have found a boson they're not quite ready to call it the higgs and there are other types of bosons not just the higgs boson even though they're sure that they found it there's still that little bit of doubt they have two separate tests with a five sigma uh level of of certainty which means that there is a one in 3.5 million chance that the observations are invalid one I'll take in those 3. odds. 3.5 million. Yeah, I'll take those odds. Now, if we get a few more tests, separate tests that are five sigma or better, or they get a, you know, say seven sigma result, then they could actually say, and it would be more likely to say that they did in fact find the Higgs. But they're scientists, they're hedging their bets, and I don't blame them. It's like when you're in computer support and you fix the problem, you know you fixed the problem. And instead of saying that you fixed it, you said, well, that should take have taken care of it. <laughs> you always use vague language to hedge your bets. So good for them. Now, what's interesting is some of the discussion around this. You know, the, the Higgs boson is the last thing needed for the standard model of particle physics. With that, we will have a very complete picture of how the universe works, and at the level of of quantum particles. It's absolutely awesome. But you also have the unfortunate thing that this is based on, or this is something that's been called in in the media, the God particle. And of course, you have all this discussion about, well, that name and various bullshit around it. And also with people saying, with this, belief in God is completely unnecessary. Unfortunately, belief in God, when it comes to anybody that's actually relying on an unknown things in science that's called the god of the gaps and god of the gaps is something that you can't kill because it just keeps on getting smaller and smaller yes instead of well you need god to explain mass and everything well now it's going to be well god created the higgs (laughs) it's kind of it's kind of like uh where's your transitional fossils between man and and every Mm -hmm. step on the evolutionary scale before that like oh you know, where's your transitional fossil? Like, okay, here's this one. Like, oh, where's the transition between that one and the next? Uh, it's just mm-hmm. a never-ending, smaller and smaller parsing of all this shit that shouldn't need to be in there. You just want to smack a person sometime. 
And it, oh, I learned a little tidbit about the uh, naming of the Higgs recently, the Higgs boson, mm-hmm. and the God calling it the God particle. Uh, the author that coined that term, it was actually his his manager, the the guy that was you know at the editor of that book that wanted to call it the God particle. Uh, I think the author of the book actually wanted to call it the goddamn particle yep. because they were having problems finding it. <laughs> so yeah, he's, yeah. he's th- the author has thoroughly apologized for that. <laughs> of course the, the media has just run with it and scientists don't call it that they call it the Higgs boson. So make sure that in conversation with people, you call it the Higgs boson, not the God particle. I mean, yeah, this is going to be awesome. I mean, the way I understand it, the, the Higgs boson is what essentially gives matter mass, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, hooray. Yeah, everything else has been has been discovered to explain, you know, electrical charge and, and gravity and all those types of things. Now we have mass. About damn time. Yeah. All right. Moving on. In Africa, they have found a nearly complete skeleton of a human ancestor. Uh, what's really cool is it's a juvenile hominid uh, from the recently discovered Australopithecus sediba. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost complete. This thing's around two million years old. All I want to know is where's the next transitional fossil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if you need a good example of that, there's an old Futurama episode. <laughs> not, not all that old. It's only a couple years old. That. Where you have uh, Dr. Farnsworth and Dr. Bobo, the uh, <laughs> talking orangutan, arguing about the missing link. And they go through this very long argument where Dr. F- or Professor Farnsworth lists off all these different transitional uh, species. And then, of course, you know, you have Dr. Bobo. Yeah, but what's the link between that one and, and the other one? <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to smack Dr. Bobo. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's always nice to find more of these fossils provide even more and better evidence that, well, what we already know, we evolved from common ancestors with the, the modern apes. Yeah, and this was literally found in South Africa, uh, close to Johannesburg, I, I, guess, I guess it is, uh, calling it the cradle of, civ- of humankind. Uh, this is exactly where you'd expect to find it and man it it really is kind of exciting yeah now it's it's not known yet if these were actual direct ancestors of humans or just a relative but it's far enough back that they had long arms small brains and thumbs which is cool yeah fucking a yeah eventually those arms got longer and the brains got bigger i don't know the arms got shorter and the brains got bigger (laughs) there you go yeah So going back a little bit older, uh, about 60 million years ago in uh, South America, they have found a fossil of a turtle that has a almost perfectly circular shell. Yeah, very flat, very wide, very round. Mm-hmm. And almost five feet across. Saying it's about as big as a smart car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is a, a, a big-ass turtle. Now, what's interesting with this is it shows that after... The dinosaurs went extinct. You had other large reptiles. Well, yeah, I mean, it was found, uh, said the La Puente mine, uh, La Puente pit in Sejerone coal mine, which is famous for very large dinosaur, very large uh, discoveries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Large uh, reptiles from right after the 
the dinosaurs. So go figure, you know, you're finding stuff where you expect to find it yet again. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the beautiful thing with science is if you have a good theory, then you will find stuff where you expect to find it. What gives a theory a theory its value is its predictive power. And here's another example of where that's happened. You know, we got three stories in a row where that's happening. It's pretty cool. So we got some exciting news out and around the uh, dwarf planet of Pluto. So recently they they discovered a fourth moon which was called P4, and now those bastards already discovered a fifth moon which they're uh, s- still calling P5 for now. So this is actually a an awesome discovery. They they've been uh, aiming Hubble telescope out there uh, for the New Horizons. Um, satellite that's going to be passing Pluto, I think 2015. So they've been scanning it to make sure that the area is safe for mm-hmm. for the satellite to get through there. And lo and behold, they found a, I think it was a 10 to 25 kilometer moon, which is P5. So and from what from what they're saying, they're fully expecting to find another well more moons out there also. Now 10 to 25 kilometers in diameter. We're talking about a moon that's about the size of a mid-sized city. And I'm, Actually, I'm not, no, a small city. <laughs> yeah, it's a fairly small city. It's pretty small. Uh, the part that I'm wondering is that is it actually round or is it misshapen? I'm, I'm betting it that it's uh, elongated. I don't know that they have that much detail on it yet. No, I, I'm sure they don't. But Yeah, still. finding something that small that far away, it's going to be a little hard to get, uh, you know, get all that much detail. Yeah, uh, it's actually one of the inner moons, which is... Fairly, I don't know, it seems a little odd to me, but pretty neat. Uh, you got Pluto, the dwarf planet. Then you have uh, Charon, which is the largest of Pluto's moons, which I'm sure throws a little bit of a gravitational kink in with their with the moon's rotations. So to have something small like that still whizzing around on the inside is mm-hmm. fairly amazing to me. But So with the orbiting of, of those moons... Uh, starting with Charon, the, the largest moon, uh, they all have a distinct and, and separate time that they orbit around Pluto, which is pretty much set by Charon, it seems. So pretty cool shit. Yeah. Yeah. More Finding out more stuff in space, always awesome. So let's move to, to politics. Dun, dun, dun. So you've been, you were helping raise money for Proposition 74, or Referendum 74. That's right. And it looks like some other people have made some very large donations. Would you be talking about Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer for, yes. for a couple? <laughs> yeah. How how cool is that? A uh, couple of the richest guys out there that actually love supporting good causes and helping others are, well, doing it yet again. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't like, obviously, I don't like the Windows operating system, <laughs> but... Bill Gates is awesome. What he's done with the fortune he has, what he's continuing to do with it, is is just incredible. And these guys also are uh, are atheists. But yeah, it just goes out to show that you can be good without God. Although with what they're doing, a lot of religious people would say that they're being very bad. <laughs> yeah, of course. As they type all their documents on Word to and Outlook to say how bad Bill Gates has been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Microsoft's not the only company that's coming out in support of, of Referendum 74. You also have Nike and Starbucks as well. Yeah. So as as I was said in some time in the past, you know, go out and buy a pair of Nikes while you're drinking your coffee and passing out flyers to help support Ref 74. Mm-hmm. Just putting that out there. Or, you know, <laughs> just donate directly to the to the Ref 74 um, 
funds that are out there. Yeah. Washington United for marriage. Yep. And make sure that when you're voting for Ref 74, if you are in Washington State, that you vote yes, because it's worded a little oddly. If you're wanting to support uh, same-sex marriage, vote yes. Cool. So, yeah, both uh, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer uh, donated $100,000 each to to Ref 74. So good on them for that. You know, there's a lot of people that will follow in their footsteps and a lot of people that need to because, well, the religious haven't really started their, their ramping up just yet, but you know they will. Mm-hmm. So, All right. What do you got next? Put in the kitty. All right. So the Catholic Church over in Portsmouth, UK, just lost a big court suit. Uh, essentially that uh, they can be liable for the crimes that their priests commit. Good on the UK for, for bringing that out. Yeah, it's it makes sense. <laughs> you know, you have people working for you doing horrible things, and yes, they, they should be held responsible for what their people are doing. This is the only segment of of the world that doesn't get held to that standard. Mm-hmm. You know, businesses, employees... Yeah, they, they can be sued. Now, so why not churches? There's one. Th- it's one thing if you're actively taking steps to correct the situation. Then I think you should, you know, your liability should at least be lowered. Yes. But in the case of the Catholic Church, they aren't doing anything to correct the situation. Uh, they're actively they shuffle making it people. worse. Yeah, they're involved in a massive global cover-up cover conspiracy. They're effectively the world's largest organized crime ring. Ooh, snap. The way they're trafficking criminals around, evading uh, the law, get, keeping them out of jail, it's it's horrible. And I'm glad that the UK is holding them accountable, or at least allowing them to be held accountable. It's yeah. About, it's about goddamn time. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the appeal process isn't done, and I'm sure it'll take ages for this to get finished completely, since I'm sure the Catholics will appeal to the to the UK Supreme Court. But I, I really hope it I – I hope this sticks. So Teresa McBain, who we had on episode two, she is the executive director of the Clergy Project. She has now been named the public relations director for American Atheists, which is absolutely awesome. With the amount of, of media attention and press she's gotten and how well she's handled all of that, she is the perfect person to have in this, this position. Most definitely. I mean – she, I, to me, she's the perfect person to to, to be right there. Uh, former clergy project. Uh, she, she, I mean, she's knows this thing inside and out. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. <laughs> and she's actually moving uh, to New Jersey so that she can actually be there at the American Atheist office. And you know, Teresa, congratulations. You deserve it, and you'll do a wonderful job. Yeah, David Silverman, the the head of the American Atheists. Uh, he had an awesome quote saying that Teresa is a shining example of the fact that atheists who feel trapped in their preacherhood can't escape the lying life and get honest employment. There is no life after death, but there is life after the church. Amen, brother. All right. Well, I think it's time to move on to our interview with Jerry DeWitt. Joining us now is Jerry DeWitt. Jerry is the first graduate of the Clergy Project, a former Pentecostal minister, and he is also the executive director of Recovering from Religion. Jerry, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for uh, joining us. Most definitely. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. 
So why don't you tell us about what's going on in your life well, at this point, since calling it quits? Yeah, since calling it quits, everybody knows the sad story. Everybody knows loss of family, friends, finance, favor. See how see how I did that? See how Pentecostal <laughs> preacher comes out? <laughs> family, friends, finance, favor. Everybody knows all of that part. But in just the last few weeks, I actually I pushed very hard to try to find an industry and then to try to find a particular company that I could work with that would coincide with the real career that I have, which is traveling across the country, speaking to local groups, promoting the clergy project and recovering from religion. And so it took a little while. Obviously, I wasn't going to get hired in my community. I could tell you some funny stories about trying to get hired in my community. And so finally, I found the industry. I found the right company. I forced them to Google me. I said, I'm serious. You really have to look me up. You really have to make sure you know who you're dealing with and what's going on. And so uh, they looked it over. They talked about the situation and they uh, began to train me. And I may have spoke a little prematurely a couple of weeks ago when I let the word out that I had a job because I was really still in the training process. And I, and I still am, but they have ordered my business cards now, so I think that's a good sign that I'm, that I'm actually on board. That's when it's official. That's when it's official, when they, when they order the business cards. Now, now it's official. So I've got more training to do next week. So to all of the followers uh, on Twitter, all of the friends uh, on Facebook, please bear with me just a little bit longer. I'm an old dog. I'm learning new tricks, and I'm studying, studying, studying. I will be back into the social media arena sooner rather than later. But I've got a job where I'm actually uh, speaking in public, and it will be able to work. It will be able to coincide with my traveling and speaking to local groups. Well, congratulations. Most thank excellent. You thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. So just out of curiosity, uh, how long has it been since your last sermon? Yes. How long has it been since my last sermon? You know, I promised you that I would have that figured out to the day. And I, oh, you know what? I do. But I've turned my stinking phone off. Of course, <laughs> it's on my phone. Uh, let's see. We are, we're over 100 days from the Reason Rally, mm-hmm. right? So I know that I'm over a year from my last sermon because my last sermon was, uh, I think, April the 10th of 2011. That was my last sermon. Yeah. So, so we're doing good. We're up into like, you know, day 400 and so forth. Awesome. Yeah. Still, still, still relatively young in, in, in this whole arena. There's still a lot I have to learn. Still a lot I'm learning, which is what's exciting for me. Yeah. How has that, that year been? It's been the worst year of my life. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's been, you know, I, I'm, I'm about to, uh, I'm probably about to horrify some of the truck drivers out there when they hear this because they may think, oh my gosh, that may have been me. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, you know, I'm going 70 miles an hour. They're going 70 miles an hour in the opposite direction. This could probably all just be solved very quickly. There's been some extremely, extremely low moments. Obviously, I'm still here talking to you. I've persevered. I've went through the dark, completely through the darkness, all the way to the other side. And, of course, I encourage everyone to do the same because, as we've heard in other arenas, it does get better. It does get a lot better. Man, keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Absolutely. You know, it's it's this very weird mixed bag of emotion because on one side, losing all of these relationships, losing finances, going into foreclosure, going into bankruptcy, 
all of these things going on obviously is very dark, very depressing. But on the other side, to be finally living life as my real self, it carries with it such an, uh, um, an, a reward that, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's all of these emotions at one time, negative and positive, of course. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah, yeah, I know for myself that first year was – it was definitely rough adjusting to just living life in the outside world. Yeah. Had I, had I not been so integrated into my community, if I would not have had such a public persona in this little community that I'm in, it would have been completely different. And for a brief moment, I thought it was going to be different. You know, I had preached my last message. It just come up on my phone 462 days ago. <laughs> I, I'd preached my last message in April. I'd got connected with the clergy project in May. I had be, had completely removed myself from the ministry because people were still calling for me to come preach revivals or special services. And I was just saying, no, I can't do it. Work won't allow. I had a, you know, I had a secular job and I went to my boss at the time, told him exactly what was going on. He and I were best friends and he said he understood that it didn't matter if the whole world called me an out and out atheist. He and I would always be brothers. I would always have a place in this community. Everything was going to live happily ever after. And so for from May until October, man, I was on top of the world because I was living life as an atheist. I wasn't in the ministry. I felt like I was being more like myself. I was just going out, doing my secular job, coming home in the evenings and just being myself. And so I experienced how good it can be for, for you know a few months. But because I had such a public persona inside this community, when it finally did break out, the knowledge of my atheism broke out into this community, then things started going downhill pretty quick. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. You're but down it, in the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah, down in the middle of the Bible Belt. But it all come back around. Something kind of fun happened a few weeks ago. A reporter from uh, the New York Times came and spent four days with me. And it forced me to get even more in the face of my community because I'd pretty well just drew a line in the sand. They could go their way. I would go my way. I was traveling a lot, so I wasn't you know, in town. And there was just a lot of people that I had not had to face since I had come out. So now I've got this reporter here, and basically we just go everywhere and do everything related to this community over the course of these four days. I take him to two of the churches that I had pastored, one of you know one of which we actually got to go in and tour the church and visit with one of the congregation members and then the next day i actually took him to what what i would refer to as as what was our mother church the church that we all worked out of and pastored out of a big church here in town we went and attended sunday morning service really <laughs> yes sir we sure did they didn't call you out or anything, did they? They didn't. They didn't. Not not necessarily. You know, there's a few questions as to whether or not the message may have, uh, you know, had a few extra points put in it. Just you know, <laughs> but but uh, but everybody was super kind. They were extremely, extremely, extremely kind, and it it really made me realize if I just stand my ground and continue to be the same Jerry, who loves everybody then I may be able to actually make a place for myself even in this community. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, they're just going to have to deal with me. That's all it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, I, I feel like it's better even for the future of the non-believing community. If I stay here, now don't get me wrong, there's a lot of other places on this planet that I, w- that I would rather live. There's a lot of people that I've met in the community, the non-believing community now, that I would really like to be just a block or two away from so I could spend a lot of quality time with them. But I think it would be better for the non-believing community if I stay where I'm at, force my way through this situation, come out on the other side of it, showing that, you know, a tornado didn't rip me off of the planet. I didn't, you know, die of some mysterious disease. The curse of God isn't taking me out. And I'm still the same friendly, loving, compassionate person that I always was. And I'm sure that there's quite a few people out there that are in the same boat you are, but even just as fearful as you were to, to come out. Yes. And that you could, you know, help them through that. You know, don't get me wrong. There are some very serious haters out there since mine and Teresa's name has gotten into, you know, things like CNN, Washington Post, you know, some of these big news outlets. We've had people, you know, connect with us and, you know, say some very, very ugly and scary things. So that level of hatred is out there. On the local level, there was a lot of confusion, a lot of a lot of disappointment, a lot of anger. But when and, and everybody's real bold on Facebook, you know, I mean, <laughs> they, they would they would say some crap. But when I ended up in church with them, then the situation was different and it, it, it tempered their response towards me. So, you know, who knows? I, I think I think this is going to be a great thing staying here. We're you know, we're going to we're going to fight our way through this financially uh, in order to save our house and we're going to stay here. Well, awesome. Yeah, very awesome. This can be done. Believe me, if I can do it, anybody can do it because I came into this uh, the least equipped, I assure you. Wow. <laughs> Damn. Staying there, that's <laughs> – you're a brave man. <laughs> <laughs> brave or crazy or something. I <laughs> I've always said you know, people would talk about my coming out. They'd be like, you're so brave to come out, and I'd say, well – Number one, I'm about as brave as the guy who jumps out of the two-story window to escape a fire. You know, that's I, I felt like I felt like who I really was, my true identity, was just forcing me, literally forcing me to come out and to be my real self. That's why. That's why, for lack of a better word, my messages that I preach as I travel, obviously, is based and rooted in atheism. But what I'm really proposing is that what's best for the future of the world is for everyone to be their true selves, for everyone to to really work as hard as possible to find their true identity and to live true to themselves. Yeah. Wow. You want to tell us about recovering from religion? Sure. Ooh, sure. Yeah. Recovering from religion is a really fascinating phenomenon in my mind. You know, Dr. Del Rey a few years ago publishes the book, The God Virus, and the way that he used medical terms such as virus, such as recovery, to explain how religion spreads and how we become vulnerable to religion, it really resonated with a lot of people in and out of the non-believing community in a way that few things had up to that point. And so multitudes of people begin to contact Dr. Del Rey and said, you know, 
I think I, I think I still got a little bit of a fever left from my religious experience. I think I'm I think I'm still ill in certain ways. I no longer believe those kind of things are settled, but I feel like I'm still carrying some baggage with me. And it really opened a lot of people's eyes up to the fact that just because you realize that you're an atheist, that doesn't free you from the effects of your religious experience. In some ways, it kind of complicates the effects of your religious experience because now it's as if you're living in two worlds at one time. When you were absolutely a believer, there was a lot of explanations for what you believed, why you believed that way, and why your life turns out the way that it turns out. There's already uh, a stock answer for every question that may come up in your mind, right. whether, whether, you're, whether your experience is good or bad. But when you move out of religion, all of a sudden you're in this big, huge open world where you may have to redefine what morality is to you. You may have to reestablish from whence you draw your ethics. You may have to redraw the boundaries of your life. And also, you may have to deal with all of the negative baggage that you still have dragging behind you from religion. You know, trying to figure out, you know, I mean, why am I homophobic or why am I a sexist or, you know, wh where is all this stuff coming from and, and how do I deal with it? So this idea of recovering from religion was a very good one that Dr. Del Rey came up with. So it became obvious that what needed to happen was people with similar uh, conditions needed to get together and that facilitated the need for a facilitator or tator, tater, tater, potato, potato, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can always hear my southern ease. It never goes away. But someone had to put together a local group where people suffering from the same ill effects of religion could get together and work their way through these things. And so that began to happen very naturally on its own. All across the country, little groups began to pop up, and then some of these groups became very, very large and very powerful in the non-believing arena. So after a couple of years of it managing itself, Dr. Del Rey realized that there needed to be a national level of the organization to just take everything to the next stage. And so that's when I came on as the executive director. Sarah Moorhead came on as my deputy director. Before long, we, we began to bring other people onto the team. And so now we've got groups all across the country. We've got a couple across the pond. And it's, it's just growing at a wonderful rate and is being extremely effective in people's daily lives. And if you don't mind me rattling on too much, just oh, stop no. me whenever you're ready. Um, no, please. What, what's special about it is this, is that it's, it's small local groups that are designed for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to be a place where people can check in and deal with whatever baggage they've got to deal with and then move on. The goal of every local RR group is for no one to show up. That's the goal. You want it to be that people are passing through. You may have 10 people one month, and you may only have eight the next month. And then maybe a couple of new people may, may show up, and you may have 10 again. And then again, they all may feel like they've read what they need to read, that they've dealt with what they needed to deal with, and it may only be five the next month. Because our goal isn't to build an organization or a membership base. Our goal is just to help people transition 
out of the religious community into the non-believing community. So we're actually almost, as it were, a recruiting mechanism for other organizations. So we're completely out of the competitive game. We don't deal with that at all. And we're, we're there strictly as the same service that a, um, an ER room would, would serve. We just want to help mend people up and get them on to the next stage of their life, whatever they may choose for that to be. Hmm. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we, we love it. We love it. Yeah, I just know with the community we have here in Boise, we've had people that start coming to meetings that definitely aren't ready. Right. And having something like that would be would definitely be helpful. We we want to be obviously we would like for there to be an RR group attached to every non-believing community group in the world. And we would like to be seen as an annex to their group so that just like you say someone shows up at the group they've still got particular questions that everybody else is already bored with or they've they've got concerns that everyone else has moved beyond we want to be there for every single group in the world for them to say look we love you you're part of us you're obviously still dealing with some things instead of being at the regular meeting where you may you may get offended or or somebody may lose patience and tell you that you're stupid instead <laughs> Why don't you attend this group for a little while and, and see see how it serves you and you know and then come back when you're ready. And I experienced firsthand how necessary that is. You know, my story picked up speed really quick. People got interested in it. I started getting phone calls. Hey, come over here and tell us your story. Come over there, tell us your story. And I was still really new at all these things. And sometimes Southernese and Christianese is the same thing. I can totally see that. Yeah, but you don't mean for it to be. You know, I mean, not once in my entire life have I ever said, God bless you, when someone sneezed, and hope in my heart that Yahweh would make their crops plentiful. You know, not once. (laughs) You know, God bless you, or even just bless you, it's just some southernese, you know? It's just it's just something cultural that you learn. My favorite example of that is, you know, I've come out, it's public, I'm speaking at these different meetings, I'm being called to speak at these meetings. You know, I mean, my story is 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 really attractive to a lot of people, especially right when I first came out. And so I'm speaking at this humanist group, and of course, when it's over with, we all go out and eat. So we're at this little deli, and there's this long table, and there's like 30 people sitting around this table all listening to me run my mouth, you know, which, as you can tell, I love to do. And this little old lady out of the group walks up, and she sees that my glass is empty, and she asks, can I get you a refill? And I was just really touched. I said, oh, that's, that's really sweet. I appreciate that. So she hobbles off in her old lady fashion, hobbles off with my glass, you know, refills it, and then hobbles back eventually. And sets it down. Well, I'm just really moved that this elderly lady felt compelled to serve me like that, you know. So when she sets it down, I'm in mid-sentence telling some crazy story. And I just stop in the middle of the sentence, and I look over at her as she sets it down, and I said, you're an angel. (laughs) And she screams at me in front of this entire deli, there are no angels. (laughs) And embarrasses the heck out of me, you know, and and I'm like, yes, ma'am, you are right. <laughs> there are, you know. So now, fortunately for me, 
I, you know, I was grounded enough in the non-belief movement and, and all of its philosophies and desperate enough in that situation that I had no choice but to continue on, you know, but, but had I been someone else, then it could have easily been a situation that could have really done some damage to someone who was trying to make that transition, you know? Yeah, definitely. So at RR, I like to say, we're really there to try to baby, you know, we're not there to debate. We're there to baby. Hmm. Well, people need the help, you know, just point them in the right direction. Most people are smart enough to figure it out. Yeah, you, you, you've got to give you've got to give people time. Th- these situations that people find themselves in whenever they're beginning to doubt, this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to be derogatory, not at all. But but from an outsider's perspective, for a long time, the non-believing community seemed to be more more intellectual than what maybe it needed to be or are more intellectual than what could actually be attracted to someone from the outside. It was almost the entire thing was just, you know, like the, like the goal was for everyone to be an Ivy League professor, you know. And if you mm-hmm. didn't come across that way, then, you know, you, you weren't fitting in. Well, what we know and what everybody's always known, but it's, it's being addressed now, is that this isn't just about intellectualism. As a person, when a person is born into a religious home, when they are toted back and forth to church all through their childhood, every weekend of their life, if not more, it is truly shaping the network of their mind. Their mind is actually being formed in a new and very particular way. So the idea that you're just going to present an intellectual argument and take that person out of religion and relieve all of the trouble and suffering that might come from that is very naive. Yeah, not going to happen. It's not going to happen dealing with a, with a brain that has been shaped from a religious worldview from the very beginning of their life story. So there is a lot of rewiring that has to be done, and whether we like to admit it or not, a good bit of that rewiring is going to have to be done on an emotional level. You know, for instance, one thing we see a lot of in recovering from religion, we have people come to us that say, look, I know, I I now believe that there is no God. So obviously there's no heaven and no hell, but I'm still deathly afraid of going to hell. They know there isn't one, but they still fear, feel the fear of going to one. Mm-hmm. And that's just because of how complicated the human mind actually is. Well, RR, Recovering from Religion, is a place where you can work your way through those things, make those transitions. Yeah. yeah I can definitely relate to the being afraid of something that you no longer believe. Uh, there, was, there was a time right before I, I called it quits where... I was afraid. I, I didn't believe in a, a devil, but I was afraid that I was being tricked by the devil. Yes, exactly. That's right. It, it really messes with your mind. <laughs> it does. It truly messes with your mind. Well, that's one of the safeguards that religion um, has put in place, and we understand how memes work. We understand how memes uh, pass their way from one generation to the next, and that is a meme within religion that has been very successful. To tell you that if you start to doubt or if you, you know, if you start to even have curiosity about something that is outside of your denomination or outside of your religion's box, that that is actually a trick of the devil to deceive you, to lead you away, and to destroy you. 
And once that thought has been put in place, it, it is a very, very difficult worldview to break away from. And I struggled with that. You know, I, I, was, I was speaking, I think it was in Austin, and I got to the point where I said it took me 25 years to, um, to reverse engineer or to deconstruct the teachings of my childhood. And somebody, they were truly trying to be funny. They kind of spoke up real loud and said, boy, you're a slow learner. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, and, and they and, and they were laughing and the audience laughed and I laughed and I took absolutely no offense from it. But but there I was a slow learner and there were very important reasons why I was a slow learner, because when I would begin to bump up against the edge of something that was very, very diametrically opposed to what I had been taught that fear would rise up in me. A, a phobic, a very phobic level fear would rise up and say, that is an evil spirit. You are on the verge of becoming devil-possessed. Your conscience is going to be seared with a hot iron, and you're going to be turned over to a reprobate mind. And so, you know, you, you, put, you put that book down, you know, and you walk yeah. away from it for a little while. And, you know, because taking the chance is, is very, very difficult, very difficult. Well, and you're in a nomination that did it all by on-the-job training, right? Yes, exactly. That's so right. when you have that, you just – you get pushed into it, get pulled deeper and deeper in, yes. unlike Methodist or Adventist or, or the like, where you go to school for seven years. Right. Study it very in-depth, and, yeah, you could get there a lot faster if you do it that way. You yeah. had to work through it very slowly while having to work another job on the side. Yes. And, you know, I, I started I started having full-time, long-term secular jobs during about the second half of my ministry. The first half of my ministry, we evangelized, we, we traveled a good deal. And what really made it complicated, and I haven't really talked about this before, but what really made it complicated for me was that you were, it, it was as if you were juggling and you were juggling many issues all at one time that you were trying to keep in the air of your thoughts in order to try to figure them out. You, you, time, career, finances, family, relationships, obligations, all of these things that I call an identity, they would not allow you to freeze time and grab one thought, one ball out of the air and examine it by itself. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't do it. All of this had to be going. So, so when I'm when I'm a Pentecostal evangelist, and I feel that I have seen healings, seen miracles. I was, you know, I thought that I was being used uh, in the gifts of the Spirit, calling people out and telling them troubles that they have in their life, things, issues that were going on. And so, I, to me, I'm an eyewitness of the reality of of what we called the Holy Ghost, not the Holy Spirit. I mean, we, we were so entrenched and so prejudiced that we felt like people who said Holy Spirit instead of Holy Ghost weren't even saved. You know, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Yeah, if you said Holy Spirit, you were liberal, you were left, you were leftist, you 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 were lukewarm, you were going to be spewed out of his mouth. Oh. You weren't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So kind of part of those Holy Ghost rollers then. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And so, so I'm guessing uh, King James only. King James only, which was a very important part of this whole process for me. 
because I had been raised to believe the King James Version of the Bible was it. Well, you know, I, 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 I can't read or write very well, but I can read and write well enough to learn the history of the King James mm-hmm. Bible. <laughs> and it's like, uh-oh, there may be a problem here, you know. <laughs> and and then, you know, as I tried to get deeper into um, my teaching of teaching messages that carried with it more of a intellectual um, value, you know, I get down the concordance and I begin to look at the actual definitions of the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic words. You know, all of this, all of this plays together to unravel this knot. But as I'm as I'm seeing doctrinal issues differently than what I had been taught, I can't just freeze time and just deal with one subject because I've also got the fact that I feel as if I've seen miracles, participated in miracles. I've also got the fact that this is the fellowship that I'm working in that is feeding my family. All of these things are are having to be juggled at the same time. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot to ask, you know. I mean, it's 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 a lot to ask of a person to to re to deconstruct the very mind that they're using <laughs> to exist with is it's a large task. Well, you have your entire worldview changing rapidly. Yes. While you're still having to live your life and it's it's incredibly disillusioning and, and confusing. Yes. It it was it was scary for me. There was there were several times that I would bump up against um a pending realization, okay? I wouldn't consider it a realization until I had internalized it and began to act differently because of the realization, but there were many times that the realization would be pending. It would just be sitting there out in front of me, and if I thought about it just a little harder, it'd be equivalent to walking a little further and stepping off in this hole of of this realization. And and what what would really bother me on a regular basis was, you know, my dad got killed whenever right before I turned three years old. Mm. Uh, he was he was a drunk driver, and fortunately, you know, uh, it's a hard word to use in the sentences that I'm about to say. But fortunately, he was the only person who was injured in this accident because he was a drunk driver. Um, but he got killed right before I turned three years old. So I lived a life of expectation of meeting my dad one day in the future, even though he died as a drunk driver. There was a part of my doctrine, there was a part of me personally that was able to give him grace and felt like God's grace would, would cover the issues that had caused him to be an alcoholic and that I would meet him one day. And and so just the fact that I had lost him made my relationship with my own son that much more precious. Obviously, a parent and their child's relationship is extremely, extremely precious. But I feel like for me, it intensified that relationship. And so what I kept bumping up against was the idea that if I accept this realization that there is no God, thus there is no heaven, thus there is no eternity, all of these things, then I'm saying that my experience with my son is limited. But that much more precious. But that much more precious. But here's 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 where the rewiring has to take place. It's it's easier now for us on the other side of this to say it's that much more precious, mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of saying, hey, guess what? You won the $100,000 lottery. Don't you feel great? And the person's like, yeah, I do. But I was told I won the million-dollar lottery. 
<laughs> you know? So 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 you're having to emotionally reorganize all of this in your mind because what religion is saying to you is guess what? You've won the million dollar lottery. You're gonna live forever and you're gonna live with your son forever and you're gonna see your dad again and you're gonna see your grandfather, which really was like the only, you know, the only dad that you had. You're you know, you're you're all of this is gonna work out at the end. The movie is going to end with a very happy ending and everyone's going to live forever and ever and it's going to be living forever happily you know and you're like well nope that's all crap but <laughs> but you did win the hundred thousand dollar lottery and you are here and you do get to enjoy this life so that's one of the things in recovering from religion that you're working your way through now, is truly appreciating what is real one thing i saw in, uh, with, when my grandfather died was my brothers and i who are all non-believers we dealt with it much quicker and more completely than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And what I think the difference was, for us, the book was finished. It right. was done. And right. it was it was complete. And, you know, you're able to have resolution. For everybody else, yes. it was to be continued. Yes, yes. And yep. you can't have closure if you think it's not over. Right, right. I, I think you're right about that. It's, it's just one of the many ways that religion steals the precious present away from us because you were able to close the book. It's done. And quite honestly, you were probably able to appreciate the memorial service in a way that believers can't appreciate the memorial service because the memorial service should actually be closing the book for you. It should Mm -hmm. be that, that community a ritual that we go through in our civilization that closes the book. Religion stole from me um, my grandfather's funeral. My grandfather turned out to be extremely, extremely important to me. It's my mother's dad. And I think he was actually the first atheist in our family. But the terminology wasn't there. You know, there was just a lot of things we didn't know. He had stopped going to church before I was born, and he had been in the same type of Pentecostalism, crazyism that we had been involved in. Um, but he had stopped before I was born. So, so we all treated him. I don't know. He had a very unique position in our family that, you know, he was the grandfather. He was very quiet, uneducated, but extremely, extremely wise. And so he just kind of sat over in this weird corner. And, and he was treated, as we would call it, a back, as a backslider, you know, a person mm-hmm. who knows better and should be doing better. But because he was such a good person and such a wise person, you know, you couldn't just get up every Sunday morning and say, you need to be getting your butt to church. You know, you just you just didn't talk to him about it, you know. <laughs> um, but he he played such an important role. Actually, I think he broke the first layer of ice in my mind because of some things that he said. But I, I really, I had such a relationship with him that I felt like I should preach his funeral. It was another one of these religious concepts to where I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders, that, that I was a miniature Jesus. I was, I was part of the salvation of the world, if you will, and I felt like I should preach his funeral. And now, my preaching class in college, they told us, do not officiate a family member's yes. funeral. Right. And you shouldn't. You should not do it. And and so maybe it's too heavy to lay it in general on religion. Maybe I should just lay it on my denomination and my personal experience. But I felt compelled 
to preach this funeral, and it was the worst thing that I could have ever done. Yeah. Because it was as if there was no funeral, there was no memorial service for him, because I had to step up and and get into a total different state of mind and and be the preacher instead of being the grandson absorbing the memorial service and and closing the chapter. I even had a vision a few months later uh, of seeing him in heaven. That's that's what a big deal mm. it was to me uh, to have you know some type of closure about his salvation. So you know I say that to simply say that was a very precious present moment that I should have been able to walk through like a regular person, but instead, once again, religion or at least my religious experience stole that moment away from me. Which I think it does for a lot of people in in a lot of different situations. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something it can do. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. It, it. it is. It really does. It it really does. It really does steal the life that we that we do have. I actually uh, I started to tweet this the other day and I got sidetracked with with the training of my new job. But I wanted to say religion is like a bizarro Santa Claus. It hmm. steals. It steals your valuable gifts out of your life and attempts to replace it with cheap, sweet treats. <laughs> nice. And so, so maybe, maybe I will tweet that before the day's over if I, if I get time to do it, but that's really, that's really what religion is doing, um, in everyone's life, even if they don't realize it, unfortunately. Yeah. And just to clarify, in case there's some believers that listen to your show and listen I, to me, I know there's at least one. Okay, let me clarify. When I say religion, I am including the terms spiritual, spirituality, and relationship. I can't tell you how many people have approached me through Facebook or Twitter, and they've said, Jerry, we're so sorry for you that you experienced religion. It would have been so better for you had you experienced relationship. Let me tell you. There's never been a Pentecostal preacher who ever preached a relationship more than me. There's never been a Pentecostal preacher who felt like he had relationship more than me. There's never been a more grace preacher. So everyone's wasting their time when they think the answer for poor Brother Jerry is that he needed relationship and only ended up with religion. Yeah. You might need to start a, a blog at some point. Yeah, it's a, a great place to answer those those questions that you anticipate getting or that you've already gotten so many times and right. just throw the answers up. And if they ask again, send them yeah. the link. That's <laughs> right. that's why I started blogging was people yeah. kept on asking me last I heard you were in the seminary. You were going to be a pastor. Now you're an atheist. How'd that happen? Yeah, I got tired of having to write the same damn thing over and over and over. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've started, and, and I appreciate people's concern, and I, I appreciate, I mean, when they're nice about it. I've had some that are just rude, you know. Like I, I had one person that I'd made friends with years and years ago and, and only knew them, only knew them for a, a few years. And, and so they stumbled across all of this, and, you know, they're like, hey, I'd like to connect with you sometimes. I said, sure, that'd be great. They were, they were big Christian. And they said, though you may not like it because I'm very secure in what I believe. 
you know, they were real smug about it. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'm cool. I've dealt with a lot of people who were very secure in what they believed. You know, I mean, you know, it, it, so so if they truly are being kind and truly uh, being interested from the right perspective, then I don't mind trying to answer them. But yes, you're right. It, it would be nice. I, a few times I've been tempted to say, have you ever heard of this thing called YouTube? <laughs> you know, because if you just put my name in, I think it'll answer your question. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I do appreciate the interest. I really do. We've got a blog going um, over on our recoveringfromreligion.org webpage, mm. and I need to contribute to it. I really do. Yeah. Yeah, you already have the platform there. Already got a good platform. Yeah. We really do. And, we, and we've got some good people that are interested in contributing to it as well. So so it, it, it very shortly, once I get through, I'm telling you, I'm such an old dog, and my brain has just been fried emotionally over the course of the last year. Once I get completely through with the training of this new job, people are going to be surprised. They're going to say, where has this Jerry DeWitt been all of this time? Good gracious, look at how active he is. Look at how much he has to say, because I'm just now starting to feel like I'm getting my brain back. And look, I've been broke completely totally flat broke foreclosure bankruptcy broke anybody out there who's ever been totally broke knows what a mind trip it is how it just drains your mind you know i mean so broke that friday night i slept on the floor of the airport in charlotte north carolina because i didn't have money to go get a room for an air you know for a hotel mm. you know i'm telling you broke so as as funds start to be generated through this new job people are going to be like wow this cheery guy he's got a lot to say mm -hmm. i can't <laughs> wait that'll be awesome it's going to be fun it's it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun and just the fact that that i can tie in the the traveling that's going to come from my job with the traveling that um, I'm, you know, that I'm, I'm able to do in the non-believing community. It's going to be great. Going to be great. I'm very, very, very excited about the future. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I do have something I do want to discuss with you more sure. from your past. Okay. Uh, you do a very good job of explaining the intellectual steps that you took in losing your faith. Right. And the could you go? Stages. Yes. Yeah. Could you, uh, Share that with our listeners real quick. Sure. Yeah, the five stages. And, and if you want to see something fun that I'm just so proud of, I can't hardly stand it, then go to YouTube and look at some of Daniel Dennett's um, last YouTube videos. And in there, matter of fact, you can, all, you can also just say uh, Dennett and DeWitt, and it, you'll probably pull up uh, the little like three-minute piece out of his latest talk where he tells my five stages over at the global atheist convention mm. in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel Dennett used my five stages in his speech. Interesting. I mean, does it get any better than that? I mean, that's, <laughs> that is pretty cool <laughs> for someone as uneducated. I mean, you can tell from my vocabulary that I'm just this Southernese, you know, Pentecostal preacher. And here's Daniel Dennett using my five stages. How, how cool is that? You know, he sends me an email and asks me, could he use it? You know, and I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, are you sure that you didn't hit the wrong email address? Are you meaning to send this to somebody else? You know, so, so anyway, so the five stages go like this. The first thing that occurred to me of how I was different from my denomination at the time was that I believed God loved everyone. 
And, and that was different than the doctrine that I had received. And the reason I believed that was because my grandmother, who was the, the, the matriarch of our family, she was, she was the Pentecostal priestess, if you will, of our family. Um, as I was growing up, she, she loved everybody. Everybody was, was welcome to sit at our kitchen table, and she loved everybody, treated everybody the same. And so that was my representation of what God must be like because she, in my mind, was the most godly, most godlike person in my life. So stage one, God loves everyone. Well, it doesn't do you a lot of good if you have a doctrine that says God loves everyone, but yet 99.9% of all humanity goes to hell forever and ever. You know, uh, you you know that it's kind of a joke. Mm. God loves everyone, but he's created a system that allows most people to burn in the great barbecue pit forever. So the next level of my theological movement was God saves everyone. I became a universalist. And there's a lot of different terminologies, a lot of different ways of looking at it. I was part of the branch that believed in ultimate reconciliation. Couldn't necessarily explain always how everyone would end up back in the presence of God, but that they would. Then eventually, uh, the further I went in ulti- into the doctrine of ultimate reconciliation, I finally got into um, the belief that Adam— in Adam, all of humanity was lost, but in Christ, which is called the last Adam, all of humanity was saved. So God loves everyone. God saves everyone. So so then you have to start digging in a little bit deeper and saying, well, you know, if God saves everyone, then what's, what's your relationship with God really like? You know, I mean, how does God communicate to people? How does this work in our everyday lives? And so I got into, with Carlton Pearson, a little bit of the New Age Christianity that has surfaced in the last couple of years, last several years. And so it was God loves everyone. God saves everyone. God is really in everyone. Christ is hidden in the heart of every man, whether they know it or not. And so the good that they do, the good that the atheists do, is really an expression of Christ that is hid in the heart of every man. God loves everyone. God saves everyone. God is in everyone. And so eventually I ran into um, certain subjects like uh, comparative mythology, comparative religion, and the works of Joseph Campbell. And I begin to have this idea that really it may be that God is everyone's internal dialogue, that, that God is simply uh, what we call this mismatch between human consciousness and the experience of being alive. Because obviously we struggle with issues that the rest of the primates do not struggle with because of the level of consciousness that we've received through and by evolution, natural selection. And so dealing with with this mismatch of living in a very primate life reality, but dealing with this homo sapien consciousness, maybe that complex ordeal, we just call that God, this internal dialogue that's going in inside of our heads. And as I always like to say, once you've gone that far – then you're just one good book away from thinking that God is a delusion. So God loves everyone. God saves everyone. God's in everyone. God is everyone's internal dialogue. God is a delusion. That's the five stages. Now, what's what's really interesting to me with that is for you, God became closer and closer 
Yes. <laughs> until non-existent. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Talking to, to Teresa a couple episodes ago, uh, she had a much more similar experience to what I had, where God just became more and more distant until right. non-existent. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of, I've been wondering and, and getting curious about where does those, those different processes, how does that, where does that come from? Why is it that some people go one direction while others go the other? And I've been trying to figure out the, the differences there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do think personality plays a large role in, in our process. You know, I think there's just some natural ways that we look at the world, natural ways that we respond to our situations. You know, my personality may cause me to respond to the same event differently than what it would cause you or Teresa to respond to. There's 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 two extra pieces that are very important because as you as you um, introduced this particular question, this was just the intellectual side mm-hmm. of the transition. Uh, two important things that happened. One was anxiety and panic disorder. Okay. Mm. Um, probably would have developed an anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder and a panic attack disorder anyway because of my personality, uh, the, the obsessive pattern of the way that I think about things and the way that I internalize criticism, the way that I internalize um, people-pleasing, uh, all of those things set me up for um, generalized anxiety and panic disorder. But religion – was the trigger. Religion was a very right. important trigger for that. Now, I got to the point that I was agoraphobic. I got to the point that I could not leave the house. I got to the point that I could not drive 30 miles down the road without someone with me. I got to the point that I could not leave my wife or my son in Walmart without knowing that I had my cell phone and they had their cell phone and I could call them. I got very agoraphobic, got in a very bad shape, and had to work my way through that, had to come out of that. Well, just like so many other people, 2 o'clock in the morning watching television, I saw the attacking anxiety um, infomercial, ordered the program, began to listen to, at that time, the cassette tapes, and realized that there was a – that really so much of this was strictly biological, that Mm -hmm. it was physical. And when I begin to put two and two together, when I begin to realize that the chemistry within my brain could cause me to believe, and when I say believe, I mean a sense of certainty, to have a sense of certainty that I was going to die. And that's what I would believe during a panic attack, that I was going to die when there was absolutely no external or internal, for that matter, reason for me to die, but yet my brain could make me believe that I was going to die, I begin to question what else can my brain give me a sense of certainty about that also does not exist. Hmm. Okay, yeah. so that's so that's happening in the background. That's that's very important. Okay. The other thing that's crucial to this process for me was pastoring. And having such a love and such a concern, and this is where the Christians really, really, really try to beat me up, have such a love and such a concern for the well-being of my parishioners, the, the people in the congregation, and and being trapped in this middle ground of, in my preaching, having to promise them the world, and in my counseling, having to justify why they didn't get it. 
Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so being in that middle ground now, Christians will then beat me up and say, well, you know, you're just a wuss because you couldn't handle the responsibility of telling them, you know, that God's got a greater plan or a bigger plan, or, you know, you're one of these weak parents who claims to love their children so much that they can't discipline them. You know, you're, you're, you're one of these parents who's, you know, feeding, always feeding your children candy, you know, and you should have been the, the stronger parent, you know, you know, pastor of your congregation and be able to tell them the truth and, you know, all of this kind of junk. Mm -hmm. Oh, that always hurts. People saying that you're not a true Christian or you're not a true this or that. Let me tell you, if I wasn't a true believer then, then they're not a true believer now. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it comes down to. I would put my life, my experience, my faith up against anyone's. I I was dedicated to the point of putting my family, keeping my family financially destitute. We lived in my grandmother's back room so that we wouldn't have the bills, so that we could travel across the country and preach the gospel. I would put the amount of time that I spent in prayer and fasting up against any of these lazy Christians that I've encountered. I can guarantee you I was a believer. I would put my experience up against anyone's. And so as I begin to pastor, um, it, it was it was the suffering was a question that was inescapable, inescapable. So what I slowly found myself doing was relieving God of the responsibility of answering these people's prayers by transitioning from a theistic belief system to more of a deistic belief system. That God is just bigger than all of this. That God's plan is so big, so beyond our comprehension, that it's beyond answering the prayers of the parents whose whose infant is dying of cancer. It's beyond answering the prayers of the all of the parents whose children are dying of starvation in Southern Africa. It's beyond all of this. It's beyond mm-hmm. all these things. So all of these, all of these issues were, were going on also, not just intellectually, but also emotionally. Right. That definitely would add a whole layer of added complication. Yes. Yeah. And, and had I, 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 I will be, I will admit that I'm human enough. I mean, I tried everything I could to stay a Christian, you know, I mean, I saw I there was no way that I could anticipate having a career as a spokesperson for the atheist movement. There was no way to anticipate that. And I mean, and quite honestly, if you added up every everything that I've received, um, every offering, if you will, every donation that I've received since December the 1st and started speaking, I would be surprised if it added up to a thousand dollars a month. I'm sure that it hasn't. I know that it hasn't. The only reason it might even come close to that is because the uh, Kansas City uh, group really got to uh, being concerned about my situation, and they created a chip in, and they by themselves raised three thousand hmm. dollars. So that's the largest amount that I've received since December. So it's not like it's not like I could anticipate some great financial benefit, some great emotional benefit. By making this transition, I fought this transition because all I could see was doom and despair. All I could see was never preaching again, never speaking again, never pastoring again, being rejected. All I could see was all the negative side of this transition. So I struggled. I did everything I could to stay a Christian, 
to stay a believer and to stay in the ministry. And had I been in a different denomination, a more liberal denomination, I might have been able to stay longer because you could get away with saying things that I couldn't get away with saying. I happened to be in a denomination in the second half of my of my ministry career that was charismatic, that was dominionist, and had a very uh, subtle form of the prosperity gospel. Hmm. And so I was completely out of sync with the congregation, completely out of sync yeah. with my fellowship. You know, because I could not. I eventually got to the place I could not get up and promise that if you paid your tithes, if you were a good, you know, church attender, if you, you know, represented Christ in your daily life, that God was going to meet your financial needs. I was counseling too many people that were going bankrupt. I was counseling too many people that if the church didn't give them a $250 offering, their lights was going to be turned off, you know. So I just couldn't, I just couldn't defend the program. Yeah. <laughs> and and I and I receive a lot of criticism from the Christian community in particular, um, you know, for letting that bother me. But I'm gonna tell you, if it don't bother you, then something's wrong with you. You know, as yeah. as 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 I like to say, you know, and we like to say in recovering from religion, you know, heal the sick but shoot the zombies. <laughs> All right. And so how do you know the difference between sick and zombie? And for me, the difference between sick and zombie is is humanism. All right. If you're talking to someone who can justify everyone going to hell and, and roasting forever and forever, then as I say, to hell with them because they're a zombie. You know, you need to be dealing with people that their humanity is being stirred up over these issues. You know, they need to be asking themselves. Here's the deal. They need to be asking themselves. If they're having to go out, if their humanity is being stirred up to the point that their church is feeding the poor, they need to ask themselves, why isn't God feeding the poor? Why are they having to do it? Yeah. And what's very sad, what's very sad, whenever you see a Christian who's feeding the poor, who's tending to the needs of the poor, and they give God the credit, that is the same as your dentist giving saving your tooth and giving the credit to the tooth fairy (laughs) (laughs) it's the same thing and they really need to ask themselves why it's this way and i know i know what christianity says it's sin you know that it's because of the fall of adam it's it's sin is the problem sin's the reason we're suffering and god doesn't want it this way to start with but then you've got to back up and say then why did he plant the damn tree to start with yeah no i've definitely seen the insanely complicated constructs you have to explain all of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, gr- growing up in the Adventist church, they have the uh, great controversy, and it's this entire doctrine about this epic battle in, in heaven yes. that's continuing to go on, and it just gets so incredibly convoluted, and it, ultimately it explains everything. Sure. But it's absolutely insane. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it does. Uh, obviously, Christian apologetics, they've, they've been going on for 2,000 years. There's never going to be anything that we will ever be able to say that they don't have a prepared um, answer for, obviously. But, but what I try to do is and, – and I'm not I'm not an evangelist. I'm not out trying to deconvert anyone, not by any means. That's just not my thing. I was, a, I was a horrible Christian evangelist. I was a great pastor but a horrible evangelist, so I always want to deal with people where they're at. But what I, would, what, I, what I attempt to do when I make these kind of statements is really just stir up a person's humanity. 
because you're hedging your bet that it's worth it, that that God allowing a human being to suffer, say at the longest, for a hundred years, to live in poverty, to live in pain for a hundred years, that is nothing compared to the bliss that they're going to live in for the next quadrillion, okay? <laughs> but the problem is, is that you're hedging your bet on something unseen, Mm-hmm. That no one has ever seen, that no one can substantiate, you know, can 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 substantiate with any form of proof whatsoever, and never has, <laughs> you know. So it's I, I'm I'm hoping that as we do make our arguments, as I do tell my transition, and I do tell not just the intellectual but the emotional side, I'm hoping that as we continue to do that, myself and other clergy project members and and the staff and the members of Recovering from Religion, that we just stir up people's humanity, you know, that we make them think, you know, where how can we continue to justify this suffering? Mm-hmm. So that's that's my my little sermonette for the day. <laughs> uh, Man, you need to get up on that job and hurry up, start earning some of that money so you can get back out into the community and well speak some more man i appreciate that yeah i I appreciate that i am i am extremely extremely excited about getting uh the next week out 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 of the way um simply because training let me tell you man oh my gracious this is learning a whole new industry at i'm about to be 43 and i'm telling you i'm operating with half of the brain that that i have because of everything that's going on um i'm very excited about getting past this training and just going to work and and really getting much more involved in the non-believing community because there's just so many wonderful things i have great confidence that the moves that we're making, podcasts just like yours, that we are changing the future. There is no doubt about it. You can tell that we're having a very positive effect just because of the backlash that's taking place. So it's exciting. It is a privilege not only to be alive, but it's a privilege to be alive at this moment in our history, and in particular in American history. I've got a whole other sermon I can give about Amerigod, but we probably don't have time for that. <laughs> no, no, we're actually uh, starting way to over him. Yeah, there is no real over. This is we're not yeah, going to we, use up all we can the internet talk as long as you like. <laughs> I got all day. Well, Amerigod, I, I give it to you real briefly. If, if you haven't already heard it and become bored with it. I was, I was, is it okay? You want to go through it? Oh, just go real for quick? it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you may choose parts of it to use or not use, but. And by was, real quick, if, you know, yeah. it's 45 seconds or 45 minutes, sounds good. But real quick, I'm driving through the desert, heading to Tucson, flipping through channels, talk radio, and I hit upon Glenn Beck. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I hit there just at the right moment where he begins to give a call out to, as he says, all God fearing people. Okay, people is plural, God is singular, all God-fearing people. And and the reason he's given this call out, this is about the time that um that the uh, Obama administration brings up the contraception issue and the Catholic Church is losing its mind. Mm-hmm. Okay? All right, so that places it in time. And of course Glenn Beck is losing his mind over it as well. And all God-fearing people need to stand up and come against this. And he begins to list 
God-fearing people, all right? And he talks about Catholics and Protestants, okay? Now, right there, I know that we live in a very ecumenical time, but if you wanted to really get into the details of doctrine, Catholics and Protestants cannot really be on the same team. Mm -hmm. Just can't. Any true Protestant needs to see a Catholic as an idolater, bottom line. Okay. Yeah. And any true Catholic needs to see a Protestant as a rebellious child at best. Okay. They're not on the same team. But then he goes a step further and he adds Jews into this. Well, there is no way that Jews and Christians, particularly Protestants and Catholics, well, I guess that'd be all your Christians, <laughs> can, can worship the same God as Jews. Now, I know Christians like to say they're worshiping the same God, but any true Jew should say there's no way that Jehovah is the same God of the Christians because, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's not three. He's one. So that's a different God. I'm contending that Catholics and Protestants and Jews all serve, via their doctrine, a different God altogether. But he goes a step further and adds Jehovah's Witnesses, and he even adds Mormons. Well, there's no way that any of these Christians would believe that Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons are Christians. So they don't serve the same God. And none of them would feel like that, or none of the Jews should feel like that any of these other people are worshiping the same God. But he goes one step further and adds all Muslims, hmm. even Muslims. Hmm. So in his mind at that moment, all of these people from Muslims to Jews, Christians in between with all their little sects, they are all God, singular, fearing people. Well, you know he doesn't believe that. You know he doesn't believe they all serve the same God, obviously. But in the political world that we live in, my contention is that there is a new God being worshipped, and I call him Amerigod. Okay? Now, <clears throat> real quick, what I think has happened, if you read Richard Dawkins' latest book, The Magic of Reality, he talks about getting in a time machine, going back, meeting your ancestors, and determining whether or not you could breed with them. And if you can't, then that's a new species. Okay? Hmm, right. So that's speciation. Mm -hmm. That's talking about how, how scientists determine what is and is not a new species, even though it's one line of evolution. Okay. My contention is, is that if you took the preachers of today, put them in a time machine, and took them back just to say Martin Luther, would they be able to have intellectual theological intercourse? There's no way. There's no way that Joel Osteen is serving the same God that Martin Luther is serving. No way. I think Joel Osteen would have been strung up, strung up by back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course he would have. Now, if it's a different doctrine, it's a different species of God. So my contention is, is that there's a new species of divinity, Amerigod. Now, the followers of Amerigod, their new form of devotion is actually political activism. Mm -hmm. They're going to the, go to the voting booth and vote according to their religious beliefs, even if they don't go to church, because now voting is more important than church. And you can go a step further than that. Not only do they have their own form of, of devotion or worship, which is political activism, they actually have their own set of disciples. And it is the Christianized version of the founding fathers of America. Yeah. <laughs> and they treat them as if they were Paul and Luke and James. They, they treat them the same way that Christians should be treating the apostles. 
with just as many apocryphal editions as well. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And with those new disciples of Amerigod comes a new sacred text that cannot be touched, and it's the American Constitution. And it's touted the same way that now the Bible has been touted for the last several hundred years. And they've even got their latest, greatest prophet, Ronald Reagan. Hmm. All of this, all of this is tying together. And now that's just being a little hard towards conservatism. And, and there's a lot of places where I'm still conservative. A lot of places where I'm not, obviously. But if you look at the big picture, this new form of worship that is really nothing more than a version of a political party is what Christianity is engaged in at the moment. It's a nexus between politics and commercialism. The seeker-sensitive movement, I don't know how aware y'all are of some of those terms, but Mm -hmm. the seeker-sensitive movement has made its way into pure-blooded commercialism. All of this is playing into the hands of political powers that I think, I think it's fair to say that the Christianity of our grandparents, the Christianity of our great-grandparents, it hasn't existed in a very long time, which for our side is probably a very good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Having a, a unified target is yes. definitely nice. And it's very watered down. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, odd, it's this very odd scenario that's being created because in one way, in one way it's very watered down, which makes it less threatening. But in another way, because it is so watered down, it's it's harder to hit. Yeah. Well, it, it's basically watered down to the level of just being that ceremonial deism yes. that you find in like the the Pledge of Allegiance. You yes. Know, I, I found something really interesting a couple of days ago, uh, talking about the Catholics are basically doubling down and making their parishioners serve a doctrinal faith uh, form that says that they. They believe they they will only listen to and believe what their bishops say, uh, you know, ha- having to do with uh, birth control or women's rights or anything like that. That, you know, if they're taking contraception, they're you know, it it's it, the <laughs> it it just sounds really stupid. Uh, yeah, it is a backlash. It. Yeah, it, it, I think it's a backlash. I I think I think they're threatened. Um, it, it's one of those things. It, it, it's it's kind of like a parent saying, uh, "You're going to do it because I said so." And I think that's going to hurt them. Like the, the sure. Catholic Church. Um, I mean, uh, yeah. that they're going to lose followers even more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 what it also does is it also forces their followers to be even that much more disingenuous. All right, because there's going to be a certain percentage of their followers that just to stay part of the community will have to at least publicly um, go along. We'll have to say, okay, you know, we're supporting the doctrines of the church. But in their private life, that's where there's going to be a big, huge disconnect because they know in their private life they're not going to do it. They know before they ever sign off and say, okay, we'll do it, they know they're not going to do it. That's one reason why they don't have as much trouble saying they're going to do it because they know they're not going to do it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, so it's yeah, it's this huge disconnect, and 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 the more disconnected they get, let me tell you, the fact that the majority of Christianity is now playing with the authority of the Bible in one way or the other, where they're like, oh, it doesn't mean that. The fact that you can have um, homosexual communities that still call themselves Christians because they say, oh, that's not what the Bible teaches. 
all all of that playing around with the validity of the Bible is weakening Christianity to the point that secularism can't help but overrun it. Mm-hmm. Because that's all they're doing is they're becoming more and more secular, which obviously the people who are in charge of these organizations realize that, and that's why they fight so hard with the backlash. Yeah. Well, and just with looking at the – well, I guess really my generation coming up and the generation after, and especially with the just the power of the internet, you have such things as you know the acceptance of, of – uh, you have such things as the acceptance of the LGBT community yes. that you haven't had before. It is becoming larger and larger in just the need to accept them. And yeah. churches have the choice of either moving along with society or becoming irrelevant and disappearing. Right. That's exactly it's, right. It's no different today than it was in the 1860s with slavery. Right. That's exactly right. And and if you're able, if you're part of, you know, calling yourself a Christian— in today's society, is 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 truly the equivalent of me calling myself a a uh, a saint, and I'm going to say saint, referring to the Saints football team. Okay, <laughs> all right, calling myself a Saints fan or calling myself a saint when I am not attached to the team in any way. All I'm saying is, is I like the Saints. That's it. That's all it is, is saying it's the equivalent of attaching yourself to a sports team. It's the equivalent of attaching yourself to uh, your favorite show on television. You know, this thing has watered down to the place that just like a person might would wear. I'm a, I'm a big comic book fan, and so I've got hanging in my closet. I just saw it's the reason it comes to my mind is I've got a Superman, a Superman S T-shirt. Okay. <laughs> All right. Nice. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. You have and Superman so, as your picture too. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you about that real quick in just a in just a second. So, so if I could walk out and 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 proudly proclaim my love for the character Superman, right, in the DC comic book, but that in no way makes me a Kryptonian. I, I got to toss this in there just real quick. Yeah. When I saw you out here at the Northwest Free Thought. I kind of thought that you looked like a kind of shorter, much thinner Kevin Smith with your beard. <laughs> Everybody does. <laughs> that, was, that was so badass. I loved it. Everybody wow. does. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Matter of fact, I, I got all my hair cut off, a lot of it cut off um, two days ago just because of this job and the offices I'm going in and blah, blah, blah. You know, those things you do to conform in order to make a living. Mm. Um, but I had let it grow really, really long. And I was going to tweet a picture of it when it was so long and say uh, – I was going to say uh, Kevin Smith had asked me to grow my hair long because people kept thinking that he was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so you know, but, but, but wearing a Superman, wearing a Superman t-shirt doesn't make me a Kryptonian, okay? Saying you're Christian and supporting uh, gays, <laughs> you have to ask yourself, what are you really? You know, just I, I think I think Christianity has gotten to the point of 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 wearing T-shirts and calling themselves things that they aren't because they have a certain amount of favoritism towards something that is culturally significant to them. You know, 
The Bible does not support the gay community. Not the Old Testament for sure, and neither does the New Testament. You know, it, it's 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 laughable. If you're going to, you know, I, I was I was debating a guy just the other day. Whenever the New York Times reporter was down, we went and sat in an office with someone who had uh, who had who had been, you know, um, pretty critical on Facebook, and uh, and this person was very very kind to let us come to his office and talk to him, and he was very intelligent and very very compassionate towards me. But but some of the some of the ways he gets around some of the bigger problems with the Bible is that to him it's metaphor. Or to him, it's figurative. Well, that's cheating. It's yeah. just cheating. It's just cheating. That's not Christianity. Go back and ask Martin Luther if those things are metaphor or not. You know, go back and ask the Apostle Paul when he wrote it if it, if it was <laughs> if there was a real him and he real and if he really did write it if he meant it as metaphor or not. It's cheating. Yeah, I, I've got the Superman symbol there because when I joined the clergy project, obviously it was all anonymous, and we all used avatars, and so there was a very small um, collection of avatars that you could choose from, and I saw one that was Superman, so I grabbed it. You know, I thought I'm gonna grab that, you know, while it's still available. Well, the reason I haven't changed it is because Teresa, when she when she came on, um, she grabbed the Wonder Woman. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so I had I've got Superman, she's got Wonder Woman, so you know now now I keep it just for that memory. You know, so that's so that's kind of cool. Awesome. So all we need now is a Batman. I don't know who Batman will end up being, but all we need now is a Batman, and we'll we'll have the the DC Trinity. <laughs> oh, that's hey. awesome. Yeah, but with this this Amerigod you've been talking about, yeah, yeah, they don't pull off of, of the Bible for really anything. Right. Just look at their their thing about traditional Christian marriage. Yes. Where do you find that definition in the Bible? You definitely don't find it with David or Solomon. No, you find dozens of other definitions of marriage, none of which match what they're describing. That's right. That's exactly right. No, they it, it, it's not there, and and they've they've watered this down to the point that it doesn't have to be there. All it has to be is the unanimous consent of the followers of Amerigod. That's all it takes for it to be equivalent to scriptural truth. So just like the Catholic Church morphed into this thing to where its traditions was of, of the same weight as scriptural theology, so the followers of Amerigod have morphed into the same type of organization where their consensus is of the same weight as anything found in the Bible. And that's scary. That honestly yeah. is scary. And just to be clear, their consensus is written down periodically in the Republican uh, platform. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It is, it, is, it is found in the platform very, very often. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I have less and less respect for politicians. I, I had a, a small political career. I was our mayor's chief of staff, director of community services, and uh, was supposed to run for mayor in 2014. I was being groomed by the city fathers for that. And uh, the New York Times reporter thinks I still could, but I, I don't think he was here long enough. <laughs> I don't think four days was long enough for him to, to appreciate that situation. But Oh, um, you should do it. Oh, I'm not saying I won't do it. I'm not saying I won't do it. <laughs> I just, I just don't know if I would, uh, you know, if I, if I'm able to save my house, I don't know if I'd take out a second mortgage to finance the campaign, you know. Um, but talk to people. I'm sure you could get people to finance it. 
Oh yeah, I, I'm sure that I could. So, but but what I, I I have less of a respect now for people who can't commit identity suicide the way that I did. Don't get me wrong. I still understand the struggles, and I still understand that it takes timing, and I'm still working, say, with the participants within the clergy project where we're helping them develop their exit strategy. We're helping them um, find sources of financing to get reeducated. You know, I'm not saying that a person needs to do what I've done by any means. I don't suggest that. But when I watch these politicians so obviously sell out and lie about who they are, you know, I mean, and, and, and in this world, it's so obvious when it's done because the opposing party will very quickly pull a nexus and throw up on the Internet exactly when the person said something completely different than what mm -hmm. they're saying now. You know, I mean, so it's so obvious that people will lie for votes. I have absolutely no respect for anyone who is who is pretending to be religious um, when they obviously do not carry the doctrinal values of, of, of those same religious people. It's, it's, it's gross. How in the world – I mean it's, it's another proof that Amerigod exists in the consciousness of the religious – of a religious America when these Christians are going to vote for a Mormon. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah. I mean, why aren't they afraid that this Mormon is going to get in office and institute polygamy? <laughs> why aren't they afraid that this Mormon is going to – I mean, you know, why aren't they afraid that, that the Mormon president is going to get assassinated because he's going to dismiss the Secret Service because he's protected by his magic underwear? <laughs> Hey, that stuff works. Don't knock it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's astounding to me the power of the self-deception that is necessary to be a parishioner of Amerigod, that these people are going to vote and support a Mormon. What I'm more excited about is yeah. the, the big campaign on the Internet of people voting for Jesus for president. <laughs> yeah. Supposedly, they've had over 200,000 signatures. Wow. Vote. I'm like, oh. awesome. Great. Your votes are just thrown away. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, who needs a Ross Perot when you've got Jesus as a candidate? Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can split this up in a lot of different ways. Yeah, Jesus. 2012, he's the dark horse. Coming it's, from behind. Yeah. Yeah. Although I mean, he needs a birth certificate. <laughs> he does need a birth certificate. Yeah. Well, just imagine, just imagine how and, and I'm not picking on, on conservatives, okay, because I'm refusing. I've got enough problems in my life right now. I've got to settle some problems before I get engaged in new ones. I'm not getting into <laughs> politics, okay? I'm not I'm not trying to start another fire, you know. Um, but consider consider how this this Mormon candidate his religious background and, and questions about his religious background is able to be overlooked. This is all me supporting my theory about Amerigod. It's able to be overlooked because he gets up and espouses conservative principles. Okay, we'll give him a pass. President Obama, he can literally get up and confess Jesus Christ as his personal savior, and that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. For people to accept his Christian background, he's probably still a Muslim. 
you know, think about that. That shows how much more important the conservative politics are than actually Christian doctrine. Yeah. During the time of America. You can have one guy get up and profess Jesus Christ as personal savior and still be in question because of his liberal stance. Another person can get up and because they espouse conservative views, he's got to pass. Of course, if you actually look at the two candidates and their their track records, they're not that different. Of course, they're not that different. That that was the reason why that you know that uh, that Romney got just absolutely beat to death mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, through through all of these debates because yeah. it was so obvious that their track records wasn't very different. He had to spend eight months trying to convince everybody that he was a conservative. Yes, he's exactly. not <laughs> right. But that's more important. The fact that he can convince them he's a conservative is more important. Yeah. And 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 I'm not I'm I'm not jumping off into the political world. I'm just saying Amerigod and the worship of Amerigod is very, very real in the United States right now. Yeah. Very, very serious situation. I've now kept y'all for another forty five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's awesome though. <laughs> Well worth every minute. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you think so. I'm I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. Now I've I've been listening to the the pace of your your speech, yes. and since I've been you know I've edited five episodes now, I've started to get really you know pay attention to a lot of weird details like that. Right. And a lot of times it gets cut like in half just getting rid of the the silence. Mm. That's not going to happen with you. <laughs> you have about a quarter second pause between words. Well, that, you know, whenever you stand up behind the pulpit for 25 years, um, you, you, you find yourself trying to always fill the dead space. Now, I will say I've had to modify my speech a little bit by doing these podcast interviews, radio interviews, because at least when you're up behind the pulpit – they can see you, mm-hmm. and you can take longer pauses, longer breaks because they can see what you're doing. You know, I mean, you might be making a facial expression, you may yeah. be making a hand gesture, or they can even see that you're taking a drink of water, and thus they realize you're not going to be saying anything while you're taking a drink of water. But I'm very conscious of trying to make sure that I fill up the dead space. So now, in a I, podcast. I'm, I'm, yeah. At least somebody who does, you know, silence truncation in the editing process. Right. You get rid of all those pauses. Right, 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 right. On on radio, it's obviously a lot harder. On yes. live radio, it's it's a lot harder. I, I've had I've had some really fun radio interviews here lately, both coming out of New Orleans. Whenever mm. whenever there was a big um, a big a big article came out in our, our our huge paper for the state of Louisiana is the Times Picayune, and so. Connection was made with one of the religious reporters, and and he did a great story. I really, really enjoyed his story. So that got some of the the New Orleans radio stations, uh, got me on their radar, and so I was doing interviews. And I had a lady who was following me from radio program to radio program just to call in and tell me that I was (laughs) (laughs) devil-possessed. It was kind of funny. So finally, I mean, you know, she'd done it a couple of times, so finally I... You know, finally, it all kind of clicked with me, and uh, and I started halfway making fun of, and I said, I think she's really got a crush, you know. So yeah, but but I was I was definitely being used by the devil. My son in Walmart, a Walmart, uh, not not right in our town, but not too far from our town. He um, he was having a he was having a talk with one of his friends, and they were talking about environmentalism. And and his friend, for some reason, just you know, uneducated on on the non-believing community, his friend 
somehow had the perception, probably from his Christian upbringing, that atheists um, probably probably picture an atheist as as all being you know I don't know Hellenistic or something that they don't have any thought for environmentalism they don't have any thought any care for the world I guess oh maybe goodness. yeah exactly maybe Weird. maybe maybe the idea that was given to them is they all live for the moment all live for pleasure and sin you know whatever so oh. why care about the future and so obviously as we know it's exactly the opposite you mm-hmm, know yeah. very much the opposite so the way it comes up is um, the 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 Christian friend. And he's 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 a beautiful beautiful person. Uh, he's 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 part of our family now. So this none of this is in criticism. It's just the story. I think he he throws some trash out the window or something, and and my son calls him on it. And that's why the conversation gets started. So they make their way into Walmart, and they're still having this conversation. And so they go their separate ways. Well, well, my son calls me. I'm I'm off traveling. He calls me on the cell phone just to tell me about the situation because he knew I would find it funny, you know. And so he's walking down the aisle and he's telling me about this. Well, what he doesn't realize is that there's this older Pentecostal lady is listening to his conversation. And so when he hangs up with me, she runs over to him, gets right in his face and says, you're of the devil. (laughs) Right in the middle of Walmart, you know. And so he took it in stride and he just laughed at it, you know, and and she walked off. She, she, he says she looked pretty heartbroken whenever he laughed, but, um, you know, he laughed and, and she walked off, but you know, that's, that's, that's the world that we live in. So not a surprise that some lady who doesn't know me would actually follow me from radio station to radio station to make sure everyone understands I'm of the devil. Mm-hmm. Nothing against Walmart, but if it was going to happen anywhere, that's where it would be. That's a good place for it to happen. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. You are exactly right. I was really, really afraid of Walmart back in October, November, December when all this first started coming out because uh, I just knew the chances of me running into some one was really really great so but i would encourage everyone who's going to tra- going through the transition like i am i'm not saying there's not a hater out there who you know might not be just as bold in person as they are on facebook but so far everyone that i've uh, confronted face to face has backed off backed down treated me with respect and um you know their bark was much worse than their bite yeah Awesome. So don't don't wait till two o'clock in the morning to go get your uh, you know potato chips at Walmart. Go when it's convenient to you. <laughs> or go to the little local store and support your your community. Oh, even much better. Yeah, here here go to Brookshire Brothers. Yeah, their their home office may be out of Texas, but you know at least they're local. Jerry, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It it's, is my pleasure. It's been great. Most definitely, man. You're a hero to a lot of people. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. I, I wear that title uh, with humility and with honor, and it's just my desire to make everyone very, very proud. Well, son of Jarrell, uh, <laughs> I'm happy you came on the show. <laughs> it is a pleasure to be here. And for all of you listening, thank you for joining us for another episode of Atheist Nomads. You can find us online at atheistnomads.com. You can email us at contact at atheistnomads.com. Like us on Facebook. Leave a review on iTunes or Zune or wherever else you might happen to find us. And don't forget, you can always email us directly at wesley at atheistnomads.com or dustin at atheistnomads.com. All righty. Have a good one, everybody.